They think they've summed you up because this is, they're told this is what you do for a living or this is what your age is or this is where you come from. And you're like, mm, no, guess what? I am so many more things. Welcome to Ladies First with Laura Brown. I'm Laura Brown, editor-in-chief of InStyle Magazine. And each week I'm talking to a legendary lady about what she does, how she does it, and what we can learn from her. Christy Turlington Burns. Her name is a complete sentence, and she is a complete lady. Yes, she was a supermodel, but what she's doing for mamas is her most super skill of all. Chrissy Turlington Burns, CTV, welcome to Ladies First, in which I discuss the issues of the day yesterday and tomorrow with women who are first in what they do. And guess what? One of them is you. I'm a pioneer. <laughs> Funny, she drove it on a wagon. It's it's the first time I've seen that um, in a podcast. Uh, and she's actually—I mean, for those who can't see, she's wearing a bonnet. And um, there's there's nothing that uh, Christy can't make work. Because you are on these for every mother counts, which is your organisation that we will get into momentarily. You do a lot of this, don't you? I do do a fair amount of this, but this is the first time I'm actually doing this in a setting which we created for this purpose. <laughs> so it's a first for me here in my booth with you. Oh, I'm so honoured. I want to talk about where we first met really quickly, which was in Sydney, Australia. Back in 1972. <laughs> it was 1972. And so Christy was in this like cool hotel where like cool fashion people stayed in like somewhere in Sydney. And I um, was young, very young, and I had gone out the night before and was feeling decidedly less than glorious and so I turn up interview Christy who is not only you know all of the luminescent on brand things and I am a shell basically but Christy was so cool and I at one point just blurted out I'm so hungover and you were so lovely just her happy to be there empathetic been there didn't have the guts to tell anybody why I felt the way that I did like you did so I had to honor that thank you (laughs) tell me firstly how was how's the last year been uh you know for for you uh as as a human lady the covid times you know in in your head but also with what you do there are so many aspects of the past year that have been extraordinary I feel like you kind of know that if you sit still and if you're forced to be present that good things will come, right? Or obviously it could be very different. But with regard to the work and Every Mother Counts, you know, last year we were coming into our 10th year working on maternal health, our tagline being making pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. I think one of the most, you know, and this speaks to directly directly to what you do, one of the most poignant things about the pandemic, and especially in the first half of it, was women who were forced to give birth in hospitals without anybody there. We actually joined the New York State Task Force on Maternity Care and COVID, but it was really in response to that people that were pregnant being told they couldn't have a birth companion, let alone a partner or spouse, and that was terrifying. But we also saw the side from the healthcare perspective, which was, of course, in a normal time, they would encourage as much support as possible for a pregnant woman or childbearing person. But because there was such a lack of protective gear and because there was such vulnerability on the side of the healthcare providers, we understood too that they were terrified and they wanted to minimize the amount of people coming in and out of the hospital or in the maternity ward. Like, could you imagine when you had your two kids and which was actually 
where Every Mother Counts began, being in a hospital with with no one. I can't. I mean, so much of the work that Every Mother Counts does is about that. It's it's advocating so that women either understand how best to self-advocate, but I mean, it's hard to self-advocate when you're in labor. It just is. <laughs> um, uh, so having a partner or a trusted person by your side to help be that voice for you, to help inform you and, you know, bring you comfort, explain what's happening if things change or become serious in a moment. One of the first things we did through the task force was to expedite the standing up of a freestanding birth center in Manhattan. It's called the Jazz Birth Center, not because it's jazzy, but because it was a former youth hostel for jazz musicians at Lincoln Center. It has um, kind of a dormitory set up already there. And so um, some folks that we are friendly with from the Brooklyn Birthing Center were already trying to get the up and running. But because of the pandemic, we were actually able to kind of cut through some of the bureaucracy and get it up and running faster. So that opened up over the summer. When you opened that birthing center, did you, were there trumpets? Did anybody <laughs> pull out any sort of bugle? <laughs> well, we just had lots of great testimony from families who had that option and that experience. And so, yes, when the baby was born, there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't like sad tears. There were happy tears and trumpets because things were going well and smooth. Tell me at this part, what has made you feel most powerful and also most powerless? I'm a longtime yoga practitioner, enthusiast, probably Mm -hmm. more than 30 years or so I've had a practice. But Mm -hmm. in normal busy times when I travel a lot and I work too much, you know, I kind of squeeze that time in for myself. And I feel that very early on in the pandemic, it was like a perfect time for so many reasons to really reignite a daily practice. And then the practice itself of yoga is a very empowering practice, right? Like, so I haven't really felt out of control. I mean, I guess there were little parts, right, of the moving to a remote working situation as much as we've all talked about it and we're all kind of looking Mm. towards the future of how we're going to adapt and what's that going to look like. You know, you just had to really be patient, um, I think, because we all took our turns having Mm. some kind of crisis in our family with regard to COVID or, you know, the child rearing and raising was, was quite something. And I have to say, I've never been more grateful to be a parent of teenagers. Right, than little ones. So you could conceivably go into another room and, and do some yoga. And um, wait, given you're 84, how bendy are you still? I would say I'm more bendy than in some ways, just because I'm so consistent with my practice now. Right. I mean, there are certain things I could naturally do when you know I was 18 starting to practice yoga, but just yeah. because I was long and, and lanky. So I can do a lot of things that, a lot of twists and things like that are come natural mm. to me. But over time and over working on a computer and, you know, like hunched over like we all are over our devices and giving birth probably, it was harder for me to do certain things like backbendy things or I just didn't like them. Now can I you do love that? Them. Can you do that that Vogue one still that you did the Vogue cover? Of course, you, yeah, of course you can. You were wearing a silver, it was a Calvin Kleiny kind of dress, and you were doing a bow, a bow pose, which apparently is terribly easy, but it looked complex. Well, it's it's not so hard, but a lot of the poses in that story because I'd written a book about yoga and it came mm-hmm. out, so that story was to talk about the book, and so we throw ourselves into it. The only downside of that was I was doing it on a wooden table, so I'm looking like over my shoulder to the left, which is also not natural. Normal, you would be like, you know, symmetrical and you wouldn't hurt yourself. So a model was harmed in that shoot. 
<laughs> but but you know what? It, the fashion that is was so worth it. It was, <laughs> it was iconic. It was not a very normal kind of thing for Vogue to run at the time or ever still. So we right. kept thinking, even when it was on the wall, we had rumors like, it's on the wall. It's one of the top choices. We're like, oh, well, we know what happens to those. They end up in the garbage can. No, that one made it. And it's it's still one of my favorites. What's your top couple of favorite covers ever? Must, they must nestle in your heart somewhere. I also was on the cover of Time, also Yoga Pose. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> and let's see, I like like the group picture, obviously, that Peter Lindbergh took for British Vogue. In Dumbo with with you, for, the, for those who don't, I'm going to try and narrate it. You, Cindy Crawford, Naomi, Tatjana, uh-huh. Patiz, who am I missing? Do you say Linda? And Linda, and Linda, that was you guys, right? And actually, we're not in Dumbo, we're in Tribeca. And then that obviously sort of triggered a lot of other groupings of this particular group of people and the George Michael video, the Freedom video. And there's a lot of things that kind of came, but that was the the first. I think you've really catchily just now renamed uh, supermodels into that particular group of people. I like this. (laughs) Well, because we are people at the end of the day. This is, tell me... (laughs) When you first, because supermodels themselves have been talked about ad infinitum and no more than you know, people asking you, but the first time the term was coined and the first time you ever heard it. My recollection is when I was a child uh, model, there was a lot of like contests, right? It was like there was a supermodel of the world contest and the Ford agency, my first agency, they had that show and it was like maybe an annual thing. I didn't grow up watching it. I think I became aware of it once I was already modeling, but it that's the first time I saw that name. Obviously, Christy's prime vocation is run, running Every Mother Counts, but she still dips her toe into the, the modeling pond. Um, and through COVID, we all kept shooting, you know, and that was very challenging for everybody. But you were out in the, out of the beach in the Hamptons and you did a, re- a reasonable amount of, of shoots over that time. But where, what did we end up nicknaming your shoot location? The Swamp. There she is now in the Swamp. And so I call her the Swamp Queen. She was basically, in the Hamptons, there's all these reeds and beaches and all this kind of stuff. My personal swamp behind, like, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from my, my back door. It was Valentino, right? Yes. And luckily, there was a bit of um, range in the weather. So Valentino, it happened to be a bit foggy. And Mm -hmm. so it kind of created like a misty swamp area. And then with others, it was like a more sunny, hot uh, we, we had day. a hot swamp on ours. You had a hot, yeah. It was a very hot swamp because I was in charge of my own hair and makeup, if you recall. And yes. I'm pretty sure I was just like a big frizzy. And so in the swamp in the early summertime, just, yes, picture it. So a lot of times we would just like hose it down and just like wet hair. Could you imagine if, you know, somebody had said to you at peak super years, there's going to be a, a international pandemic and you're going to be shooting, but you're going to be in a swamp, steaming your clothes in the middle of like, somebody told you that before you were going to, going to go on the Versace runway. Oh my God. How do you decide what jobs you do in the modeling universe these days? It really is timing. I feel like if I get asked at a time when I'm overwhelmed, which is, you know, I guess at least once a month, (laughs) then it's a no, 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 everything is no. And honestly, it took me a long time in my life to be able to say no. But there are occasions where a good friend will ask, 
someone that I haven't seen in a long time who I adore. That could be a photographer or stylist or just the hair and makeup team. A project that's like a first or something really exciting, some kind of milestone important thing that I feel Mm. like that would be, it's a good excuse. And it just makes me think of it in a different way. And then sometimes it is just a paycheck, to be honest. Like I I run a nonprofit and I don't take a salary. So that job still, still allows me to be able to do all the other stuff that I do. So tell me about being younger and obviously thrown into this business that you're not prepared for it, but how easy was it to get carried off a little bit? Do you remember the one? The, yeah, the, some of the first times you started to sort of step up and go no. Well, because again, I was a child when I started. My mother had to be my chaperone, and so I, you know, I remember my first agency wanted me to sign a contract, but I was a minor, so I signed a contract with my mom's signature, which obviously would never have held up. Um, I don't think, but when, In I turned, when I turned eighteen, it automatically was like null, and then I was like, ooh. I already know enough by 18 that I will never sign a contract with a model agency again. I think over time, you know, you as a young model, you don't even know that you can have an opinion, but it took a while. Like, I mean, it took a couple of years and I, I just took it all in. And at a certain point I started feeling like what's okay with me. I don't want to just like copy somebody. What do I not agree with? And what do I want to ask? And so I started to have to ask more questions. There was a time as well where a magazine would book you for a week and you'd be, it'd be on your calendar forever. And then, and then suddenly like the day before they would change the team. Like you're like, I said yes to this because. Because such and such was shooting it. You had no say in the matter. We have Mm. you, we own you in this time, and we're going to do with you what we want. And I very quickly was like, nope, 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 nope. Also with rights, like none of us have any rights to our image, right? So magazines have a sign of release. After a while, I started to figure out like, I'm just by myself in the moment, scratch out the part that says in perpetuity, like you have the use of my image forever. And so because I was able to do that in some instances, I still get a lot of requests just asking permission. And that's all I really want. You know, uh, Emily Ratajkowski wrote a lot about this, about losing control of her image. And had that ever happened? No, I mean, hers happened in a really unpleasant way. It was an incident she talked about. It was very unpleasant. But did that happen to you in, in the early days? She does such a beautiful job, I think, writing about her story. I never had anything like that. Thank goodness. There were scenarios where you would kind of on your own be sent out. I think though, because I was young, I did have like a a chaperone, like whether it was my mom or in some instances, my older sister came with me on a couple of shoots. But there were other times, meanwhile, where I would just show up in Milan and some random old man would pick me up, you know, like, like there, like literally, and thank God I wasn't like, taken to the woods or put into the back of a trunk. But honestly, I still have PTSD of all of the things that could have happened. There was no one responsible. And I don't know whose responsibility that is, but certainly my parents had the sense that my agents would play that role. And they really didn't. They really didn't. And, and sometimes these days they don't either. Who do you respond to as, as a model now? I think in some ways, just for the little bit that I know about influencers, it seems like a lot of them do have their families involved. When I even look at like the Kardashians, right. I've only met, I think, one of them. But I can see that whatever your opinion is, there is still yeah. a person in the family who is a part of the process. There's somebody there who's got right. their child's best interest or is looking at their career for the long view. And I think what happens with typical model agents is that it's turnover constantly. Imagine if you were coming up now, like navigating this. 
with all the social media like that, and that's, I think, propelled, you know, so much of the supermodel thing. One, you're all gorgeous and beautiful, but there was the imagery and sort of the mystery you had, you know. How would you, if you were like just to plonk into it now? I don't think that I would have been a great candidate for it, to be honest, just given that I am a pretty private person. And I don't know that if I was younger and of this era, I, I don't know, I, maybe, but I can't imagine myself who I am now feeling like at the beginning of my career that I would have wanted to just be constantly, it's like a whole other job on the side. And now it's that that social following is what will guarantee having a bit more longevity in the career as opposed to the other way around. And so that seems a little upside down. I guess with clients with me, because of the generation I come from, there's low expectation. And I've always also, these are things that I don't post. And so they kind of know that if they're coming to me, they're not looking for that constant thing. You know, I have a lot of friends who are younger models and it's just, it's just part of their deal. Where's the time when you're actually working. Uh, Who do you think, who do you sort of tip the hat to of the younger gals today? Um, I mean, I have gotten to know really well over the last 12 years or so, Carly Mm. Kloss, and I adore her as a person, as a human. She's now a mama. I know. I'm so proud of so many things that she's taken on. Um, and yet she happens to still be a warm, approachable, grounded human. And I, I, I love that about her. And I've gotten to know others too. Like I recently got to meet Kate's daughter, Lila, who's so lovely and adorable. Yes. Um, I got to meet Cara Delevingne, who of course I knew who she was, but I never crossed paths with her until recently. There's just a really nice, like almost instant camaraderie with people who've done it before, you know? And I think I'm starting to see more like Kara Nelson, who I love. She's, you know, I think just in the sort of generation right behind mine, Amber Valletta. I got to, you know, reconnect with Shalom Harlow, who I Mm -hmm. loved. Those are, those are women that I met when they were teenagers coming in. And I was like, okay, I know exactly what the, you know, and if I can pay it forward to you, I will do anything I can. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Welcome back to Ladies First with me, Laura Brown. I'm talking to Christy Turlington Burns, and she's probably telling me what to do. <laughs> but you don't do runway very much at all, and oftentimes, and this is a, a scoop, guys, whenever there's a fashion month, Christy likes to plan an Every Mother Counts trip, pretty much. <laughs> Did you hear that? That was an evil laugh, which means, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in Haiti. I can't go on your runway. CTV, you just did Kim Jones's debut for Fendi in Paris, France, where which was inspired by Virginia Woolf, and you were, many of you were in little glass boxes like exquisite fish. How was that? And especially you were traveling to do some work during all of this during during COVID. But tell me about that experience. 
Yeah, that was my first time on a flight for a job. And I got to meet Kim, I don't know, about a year and a half ago or so. He reached out when the announcement that he was taking this new role at Fendi. And he asked right away, like, I have this vision for my first show. It's going to be in Paris. Can you do it? And I remember thinking at the beginning of last fall, like, is that really going to be possible? So we kept in touch and he would text me like this beautiful music that was composed, especially for the show. And then finally, and I still like up to like a couple of days before I got on the plane, I thought this really probably is not going to happen, but then it did. And so for me, that little bubble to leave New York, to be in another city during a pandemic with curfews, with like much stricter curfews than we have had. It was just a really interesting like thing to experience. And then I got to see some of my mates. So that was nice too, like Kate and Naomi. And it gave me actually a few weeks of joy when I came home. We're just talking the other night about those sort of moments the real fashion moments and and I was I was talking about living in London and how I'd gone to McQueen shows and and you were saying you they came after you but I'm curious are there things that you've seen that have, you were in uh, at NYU when McQueen was showing in the, in the late 90s right are there things you've seen sort of since or that you're like oh wow that would have been great I mean I think he's kind of the, he's the main one that stands out I sort of stopped doing fashion shows in the mid-90s when I went back to school. And, I mean, I did, like, a couple of charity shows for friends, but other than that, Mm -hmm. just wasn't in the game. So I have, you know, some regrets not having met him, not having got to see how he worked up close, because that's also really unique and special as a model, you know, to be working so closely with some of the greats. I think that's so funny. If I was going to ask two supermodels, to change a light bulb, it would be you and Cindy Crawford. Just particularly very pragmatic, both of you. Hmm. I was going to say, see, you still need two of us to do a light bulb. Um. <laughs> yeah, you do because, you know. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. I'll take it offline, but, you know. How do you reconcile the mythology of all of that? with the reality of life? And how did you do it at the time? (laughs) I guess it's just human nature that people have to categorize. I mean, we're all working right now to get out of those boxes and to start to be a little bit more um, just open-minded about people and that people grow and they change and they evolve, hopefully. But yeah, when you start in a profession and you're a, a kid, the way that they differentiate you is like, okay, here's the smart one. Here's, I mean, Cindy was the smart one. I was the nice one. I'm fine with nice. I'll take nice. I'm on time, I'm polite, I'll take those things. But it's like, why why do we only get to be one of those things? And why is our entire rest of our life is tied to that one thing? That's why you're a colossal (laughs) bitch now. (laughs) But on the other hand, I would say, I think I'm a more open-minded person to other people's experiences because I've been in that space, right? Where people have little expectation. They think they've summed you up because this is they're told this is what you do for a living or this is what your age is or this is where you come from. And you're like, "Mm, no, guess what? I am so many more things. And a big motivation for my going back to school and my continuing my education and my continuing to push myself in ways that I could never have imagined as a teenager. A lot of that, it's not only as a response to, I think a big part of all of that is just who I am and the way I was born and what I came into the world with. But I would say there's there's nothing like a motivation when somebody tells you that you are not enough or that you are small. No, I think of, of you gals that I am lucky to call friends who've done, you know, who have been models, uh, 
you, Helena, uh, Cindy, Shalom, um, Carolyn Murphy, Amber, Karen, all have a lot to say now because for many years no one was listening. I mean, I guess so, but I think I always think it, it's like our world is just a microcosm of the bigger world, right? Yeah. And so what that says to me is that girls aren't listened to, right? right? And that women aren't listened to. Like, I mean, I I know a lot of pretty successful, powerful people, and they still struggle with negotiating for themselves. With like, you know what I mean? All that lean in stuff. It's real. It's just kind of like, oh, I've got this now. You know what I mean? I was this, I was known as this particular dimension, but all of this stuff was roiling inside of me the whole time. And now I own it. I mean, okay. So I mean, sometimes we're in commercials and sometimes like Cindy, for example, had the MTV show. So you got to feel a bit of her personality because you were getting to see her in these different situations. But the rest of us, you know, cause I really wanted to be able to like figure out who I wanted to be before I started to talk a lot. And so I don't know about all of the other women that you mentioned because not everybody had the same path, but I think with age, with experience comes confidence. I mean, honestly, even when I look back at some of the interviews backstage and things, and they just throw a mic in front of your face and you've never been told what to say, what not to say, how to frame your thoughts. Like, you know what I mean? It's like really is throwing people Mm -hmm. to the wolves. And so, you know, some of that stuff is really funny to listen to now, but in retrospect, the sound bites that were pulled, you know, it's just like fodder. Like let's throw you in, you know, throw you in there and make, and if you say something stupid, that's even better. Oh, it's, it's the best. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not fair for anyone. I would say for any young person, like gather yourself, gather your thoughts, you know, before you use your voice, but that's a practice. I think it, it takes a certain discipline, especially going from one industry to another, as you did, you know, with the knowledge that you had to acquire for every mother counts and you couldn't get it wrong and you couldn't be seen to getting it wrong. Well, I and saying, I hey. still get it wrong a lot of the time, but not, <laughs> not the main stuff, not the most yeah. important stuff. The stuff that I get wrong is the new stuff, right? I still am. I'm still learning how to lead a nonprofit. Um, last question I'll do before we do 10 first is just give us a little bit of but it throws a bit of chum in the water about the supermodel documentary that you're—it's the early days with you, Cindy, Linda, and Naomi. Tell me what your idea, what your blue sky ideal for it is. It's been a tricky time to be making a documentary, right? But what has been good is I think so much of it is really about this this very special time that, like I mentioned before, like we could never have predicted how meaningful or how nostalgic that period of time is and and mm-hmm. and was. And so for us to be able to share those stories and memories together as a team, because we were in it together, but to look back and to be able to celebrate all of the fun and like, you know, all of that stuff that we're all feeling about, like we miss it in terms of the world we lived in, right? They've been collecting lots of archival, which I think is a big part of a film like mm-hmm. this because so much of it is about that period of time. But I, I'm hopeful now that most of us of our group have had at least half of our doses of vaccine, that mm-hmm. we will be in a position soon to be able to do some more filming. And, and it's going to be great. I mean, I've got a cool idea. Oh, what? Tell me. Uh, Before you go down to Tribeca, put on four leather jackets and just have a little prance about. Oh. Oh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mind the cobblestones, you know, on your joints. Don't worry about it. Just put the jackets on. Give Tatiana a call. Don't know. She's around. And just kind of, I don't know, 
It's reenacted. It can't possibly go wrong. Um, so I keep so, thinking about us as like some of those rock and roll documentaries because yeah. we weren't like a band or a package deal per se, but there were so many crossover moments. And the music was great at the time. And Yeah, you better get the, If you don't get the Freedom soundtrack, I'm afraid you're going to have to cancel the whole thing. <laughs> I think you're right. Hopefully they're yeah. working on that. You're in the sweater? No, Linda was in the sweater. Were we in the- I was in the sheet, the very long sheet. And I'm a heavy-footed person. I'm not the smoothest walker. Like, on a runway, anyone who had me follow them knows this. Iman used to give me <laughs> a lot of grief. Um, but so the fact that that in, like, slow-mo, people think of that as, like, a graceful scene. I'm like, if you only knew. I'm like, clomp, clomp. <laughs> Is it like when the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? Totally, when the, totally. When the water goes, like, gunk. <laughs> and then because I didn't know, I hadn't learned my words yet because the, the album or the cassette had just come out like days before. I got off the plane, went straight to the set at, in London, and I listened while I was getting my hair and makeup, but I'm not a quick study when it comes to lyrics. Still not. And so in that scene where I'm kind of like going like this, it's a poster board with cutouts, and I just mm. duck down every time I don't know the words. So I duck down quite a lot. So, um, yeah, just re- reenact that. Okay. CTB, finally, we do something very silly just called 10 firsts, and uh, it's just 10 questions involving the word first. Okay? Can you hack it? Okay. First drink you order. Depends. The other night, it was an old-fashioned. You did have an old-fashioned. And when did you start drinking old-fashions? Because I don't I just don't think if you was a blatant wino mostly. I know. I love my red wine, but I think in the winter, and it was a little cold the other night, I, I kind of have come to like... Uh, an old fashioned, maybe because I'm old, maybe because I come from fashion, <laughs> but I can only have one. I've had two and it's not good. There was a murder. What's in old fashioned whiskey? Bourbon. Bourbon people. Hey, she just gave you a campaign line. I'm, I, I'm old and I'm from fashion. Come on, call her up. Okay. First person you call. I hate the phone. I hate the phone. I mean, it's my mom because I love her. She lives across the country. So really, it's FaceTime mostly. But if I could email my mom. (laughs) And I love her, but I... I get you. I get you. Okay. First joke you remember. I'm so old that I grew up with like Henny Youngman in the world. Do you know who Henny Youngman is? No, but that's probably a cultural thing. Okay. So there were these like really silly jokes like... I just flew in from Las Vegas, and boy, are my arms tired. (laughs) You know, that kind of joke. Okay, first fashion splurge slash most precious fashion item. Ooh. I think my first fashion splurge was so random, but it was a Bulgari watch. I don't know why. It made absolutely no sense, but there were constantly things that I had to wear for shoots, and I started to be like, oh, I appreciate this timepiece. I haven't worn a watch in 25 years, meanwhile. But that was something really, like, and I still have it. I still have it. So you want that watch, yes. That watch. And then... uh, Most precious, most precious. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm not super attached to stuff. I always joke with my daughter, like, when I'm dead, you can have this one. You can have one. And I don't even need to wait till then because now she starts to, like, she can wear all of it. But Take there's it. nothing, okay. you know, I was like, oh, do I let her wear it? Because we used to destroy all of my mom's things when we started to borrow them. But yeah. I don't even care because, honestly, I can't wear most of it anymore. So let her live. That's what she mm-hmm. loves to say to me. Let me live. So I'm, I'm going to let her live in all of my stuff. In your Versace? 
How much Versace do you have? I have a fair amount of Versace. I have a lot of yeah. Chanel. I got a lot of Chanel, Laura. Oh. You know how generous Carl was in like... Oh my God. You know, and just like we shot together a lot and... But everything was so short. Oh, little tiny minis. Did you get good jackets though? Jackets. Oh my God. I have jackets. I have uh, boots. I have like motorcycle boots. I mean, mm. I got some good stuff. I got some hey. good jewelry, Chanel jewelry. And I yeah, used to wear some of it. Like, that's the other thing. Not that it's not gorgeous, but it just so is not me. Well, it's just, it's just very fashion on. Yeah. 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 But that's okay if you're up for it. You know what I mean? But like, just to be like, I know he gave me an iPhone once and he, and uh, all this was a uh, jackets. And I know it was really. He's always that like, if a, you look at something, if you would look at a book on a shelf in his house, it, take it. I like to be like that, actually. I will give a thing like that because I think it's a, a really lovely thing to do. Christy, I really like your apartment. <gasps> I have to ask my roommates. <laughs> uh, first date. So I think my first date, because I would define it as like a, a boy oh, picking me up in yeah. a car and taking me someplace. And so when I was like 14 years old, a boy, probably 17 years old, which to me I would never have allowed, picked me oh. up in a car and took me to a concert. And the concert, the concert was a country music concert. I was a horsey person. I do love a lot of the like really old country music. And so he took me to that. Right. And I think I drank a beer and I think I puked in his car. Oh, romance. Yeah. Oh, young love. Okay. First time you owned your shit. You mean like my my emotional shit, my baggage? No, no, I like just took control of something. I can remember being really young and bragging about something to one of my close friends and her saying at one point, like, you don't have to be good at every, like, you don't have to. And <laughs> and I remember that, that those words come back to me all the time because I'm like, right. you're right. Why would I have to, sh like, if you do stuff, just do it. Why are you talking about it? But I don't know if it was just because I was a middle child out of like a family of girls that I was always like, mm -hmm. I can do this and I, I can ski and I can play soccer and I can do this. And, and I realized like, shut up, just do it. So I had a friend say to me once, do you ever have a silent thought? <laughs> as a child? No, as an adult. But here's what I was just like, oh, that's a question. Have I? Da, 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 da. But I, I think sometimes if you're happy to be there and you're proud of what you've done. Yeah, I think okay. so. But I do think yeah. there's a little bit of that, like, read the room. And sometimes sharing your your successes can make other people feel small. And I think that's what she was trying to tell me. Right. And I took the cue and I heard her loud and clear. And I am a much more gracious person person, even as from the moment I became an adult, I like, I can see the people in the room who are saying, look at me, look at me. And this, like, did you know about this? Did you know that? And I've yeah. chosen like, that's not, that's not who I want to be. And it's not who I want to be for myself, but it's also, I don't think like helpful to other people. <laughs> and then, you know, and that's a lovely learning, even though your friend is dead to you now. Okay. Oh, um, I gotta find her. I'm going to thank her. <gasps> you should thank her. What's her name? I think it was Jenny Maltby. You saved Christy from being a real dick. Okay, right. Here we go. First thing you turn on TV. I mean, right now, because it's changing all the time, I'm really into the um, Call My Agent show. And so when I get to turn on the TV, that's the usually what I go for. The best. Four seasons, then it, then it just stops. I'm dragging it out because I, I'm trying to take my time. So good. Okay. First thing you do or eat if you're stressed out? My cuticles. <laughs> 
They're not delicious either. That's like my worst habit that I've had for years, but I also used to be a smoker. And so this is kind of what I did instead of, and it's just, it's like, it's, I'm I'm anxious in the sense that I uh, have a lot of shit to do. It's that I have so much that I want to do. And so I pick up my cuticles and I bite my cuticles and it's like, oh, it's a horrible habit. I'm so mortified. As I look at my hands right now, I'm mortified. Well, thankfully they're out of frame. Oh, but if you want to talk about serious things, um, I, I am like a... I'm like a squirrel kind of person. I love to snack on things and I love nuts and seeds. I'm probably not supposed to eat so many. So I like live with a thing of like tamari flavored almonds in my bag at all times. And you put them in your little pouch and you hop off uh, up to Central Park where you live. Okay. First thing you'll do when COVID is really done. I mean, I would normally say travel like crazy because I'm desperate to... But I'm also not desperate because I have learned to love my home. I've always liked my home, but I actually made my home feel like a home. Like any of those little things that I used to come in at the end of a long day and just like, I can't be bothered. I've kind of taken every corner of my home to turn it into something that looks good to me, that feels safe, that feels comfortable, that feels inviting. So I'm not as anxious. Like I'm fine with whenever it happens. I'm not like I had to book my ticket tomorrow. But I have a lot of people around the world that I love, that I miss. So being able to see you the other night, like a couple of friends that we've had like a little mini, mini, mini pod, like that feels so good. And knowing that that's coming soon with others that we love, I'm I'm very excited for. Yeah. Just remember that your friends, in fact, have legs and aren't just torsos. Yeah, that's good too. And lastly... The first thing everybody can do to support the work of Every Mother Counts. Ah, well, the first thing you can do is check out everymothercounts.org. It's Mother's Day season for us. So, um, you know, there's a lot of cool events and opportunities to learn more about what we do. And so, you know, once you learn about some of the statistics, you know, girls and women do not need to die from pregnancy and child-related complications in 2021. So, and, and people who are of color do not need to be disproportionately impacted by our bad healthcare system. So if those things resonate, and if you want to know more, we have a lot of ways to engage. If you, yeah, if you came from a mother, the same, if you were born, right? So I think that's the majority of people were born. Maybe check it out. Uh, it might, it might speak to you. Please do. This has been Ladies First with Laura Brown. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Savarese, Danielle Roth, Anne Ford, Anne Kane, and Erica Wong. And thanks to Brian Anstey, Molly Stout, and Haley Mason at InStyle. You can find out more at InStyle.com. Find us on Instagram at InStyle Magazine, on Twitter at InStyle, and you can find me on Insta and Twitter at LauraBrown99.